You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Theater Geeks Anonymous. At this time, we ask that you turn off all cell phones. Unless, of course, you're using them to listen to this podcast, in which case, please keep it on. And please refrain from any flash photography, as it is dangerous to the performers of this podcast. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Don't you see? It's so simple. Step one, we Google the biggest flops on Broadway. Step two, we find the crazy stories behind them. Step three, we see how they lose millions of dollars. Millions? Broadway isn't cheap. A lot of fancy people want to be producers. Step four, find out why the show won't go on. Step five, end this episode and head to Times Square. Times Square? That'll never work. Only Broadway successes are in Times Square. Ho, 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 ye of little faith. Guess who this is? It's Pamela. <laughs> and this is Ebony. And guys, we have a guest today. A special guest. <laughs> who is it? It's my sister. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi, everyone. <laughs> so my sister Elise is in town. And I, but when I knew she was coming in town, I immediately was like, Pamela, can we please have her on the show? Because the whole reason that we even started this podcast is because we were talking about how I had seen Sunset Boulevard, and then I said that and Rebecca were the two movies that my sister and I used to Mystery Science Theater 3000. (laughs) And I was like, oh, you want to hear a story, Rebecca? That's blah, blah, blah. And then I just spilled it all. And it was bananas. (laughs) It really was. And that that is actually like how our podcast started. Like we were like <laughs> talking about Pamela brought up. She wanted to start a podcast. And I said, I'd been thinking about it, too. And then we were like, she was like, well, what will we do, do it about? And I was like, I don't know. And then we sat there and talked about something else. And then I was like, well, why don't we do it about what we were talking about at the beginning of the day? It was it was Providence. <laughs> It really Such a nice word. It was Providence. I love that word. <laughs> it's like, it's just, we, it wasn't us, certainly. No, no <laughs> It was a really, truly amazing experience. And literally, from that moment yeah. on, we have been working hard on this podcast. To get these podcasts to all of you. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> oh, so I guess we should tell you the name of our podcast. Oh, geez. <laughs> so this is Theater Geeks Anonymous, y'all. It, but you probably clicked on you, it, so yeah. if you didn't know. You knew. You knew what you I were getting you into. Knew. This is the show where we tell you all about Broadway flops, scandals, and Newarks. 
Who fails, who sues, we tell their stories. We are going to tell those stories. Yes, we are. We got a good one for today. We do. We're so excited. Well, this is what started it all. It is. Ebony, you already mentioned it. But uh, if you weren't paying attention for the first three minutes, (laughs) actually two minutes and 14 seconds, (laughs) uh, it's Rebecca. I'm so excited. (sighs) Okay. And Ebony, like I, all right, Ebony, we're getting into the story. I'm so excited. I'm excited too. (laughs) Because this is this is what yeah this is what intrigues me. I mean, like I because I've done musical theater, I've been right. in the show, I've been backstage, I've done all that. But like, it's the story behind everything right. that just fascinates me to no end. Right. And this is one of the shows you got a callback for. So true that. <laughs> Which I'll talk about probably a little bit later. <laughs> so just to get started, this is a novel based mm-hmm. on a, excuse me, it's a musical based, based on, on a novel. novel. There we go. Yeah. By Daphne du Maurier. Uh, it was pub- published back in 1938. And just to give you an idea of what the synopsis is, I know you know, but just right. to let our audience know, mm-hmm. um, While working as a companion to a rich American woman on holiday in Monte Carlo, the unnamed narrator who... Basically, they call I in right. the musical. She is she's just the narrator. She's by in first person. I think that's why they call her I. So mm. for purposes of this, we'll call her I. Okay. Um, she's a naive young woman in her early twenties uh, who becomes acquainted with a wealthy Englishman, Maximilian or Maxim de Winter. He is a widower, aged forty-two, and after a fortnight of courtship, here's the test: How long is that? I forgot. <laughs> it's two weeks. Oh, that's right. That's Freaking right. the fort just loses Fortnite. me, and I'm like, it's four of something. It's not four of anything. <laughs> it's not four of oh, anything. Dear. That's okay. It's two weeks. You're not the only one who didn't know that. I almost, I can guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> so after two weeks of courtship, she agrees to marry him. And after the wedding and honeymoon, she accompanies him back to his mansion in Cornwall, the beautiful West Country Estate. Mandalay. Mandalay. Is it Mandalay or Mandalay? Because it's like it's spelled Manderly. Oh, right. But I think they say it like in the movie, they said it Mandalay. Right. Last night I dreamt. (laughs) It's like the beginning of the Rebecca the Musical, and I can't remember the tune right now, which is why I bailed on that. But that was right. But it's where the, you were first, saying, the first you... line of the book is also, last night I dreamt of Mandalay. A Mandalay. Um, so anyway, Mrs. Danvers is introduced in this story as the sinister housekeeper who was profoundly devoted to the first Mrs. De Winter, Rebecca, who died in a boating accident about a year before Maximum and the second Mrs. De Winter, or I, met. She continually attempts to undermine the new Mrs. De Winter psychologically, subtly suggesting to her that she will never attain the beauty, urbanity, and charm her predecessor possessed. Whenever the new Mrs. De Winter attempts to make changes at Mandalay, uh, Mrs. Danvers describes how Rebecca ran it when she was alive. Each time Mrs. Danvers does this, she implies that the new Mrs. De Winter lacks the experience and knowledge necessary for running an important estate. Cowed by Mrs. Danvers' imposing manner, the new mistress simply caves in and just allows her to do whatever she wants. She is soon convinced that Maxim regrets his impetuous decision to marry her and is still deeply in love with the seemingly perfect Rebecca. 
The climax occurs at Mandalay's annual costume ball. Mrs. Danvers manipulates the protagonist into wearing a replica of the dress shown in a portrait of one of the former inhabitants of the estate. The same costume worn by Rebecca to much acclaim shortly before her death. The narrator has a drummer announce her entrance using the, the name of the lady in the portrait, Carolyn de Winter. When the narrator shows Maxim the dress, he gets very angry at her and orders her to change, which in the movie is a very cool scene where she just starts crying and runs up the large staircase into her bedroom and slams the door. Shortly after the ball, Mrs. Danvers reveals her contempt for our heroine, believing she is trying to replace Rebecca, and reveals her deep, unhealthy obsession with the dead woman. Mrs. Danvers tries to get Mrs. DeWinter to commit suicide by encouraging her to jump out of the window, which is also a very cool scene in the movie. Yeah. That's it's creepy. That's the scene my sister and I always made fun of. <laughs> you know you want to. You know you want to. And they're staring out off of the balcony. Oh, it's creepy, man. That is a creepy scene. <laughs> Oh, however, she is thwarted at the last minute by the disturbance occasioned by a nearby shipwreck. A diver investigating the condition of the wrecked ship's hull also discovers the remains of Rebecca's boat, with her body still on board. (laughs) (laughs) This discovery causes Maxim to confess the truth to Mrs. DeWinter. He tells her how his marriage to Rebecca was nothing but a sham, uh, how from the very first days, husband and wife loathed each other. Rebecca, Maxim reveals, was a cruel and selfish woman who manipulated everyone around her into believing her to be the perfect wife and a paragon of virtue. She repeatedly taunted Maxim with sordid tales of her numerous love affairs. The night of her death, she told Maxim that she was pregnant with another man's child, who, now the character, because we don't mention it in the, oh, maybe we do, in the uh, synopsis here, Jack Favell is the character's name of the man that she was having the affair with and who was supposedly the father of this child that she told Maxim about. And he's going to play. Isn't he also a family member? I feel like like he's a cousin. cousin? Yeah, Yeah. I guess back then it wasn't that big a deal to... Gross. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't sleep with my cousin. No. Um, she repeatedly taunted Maxim with sordid tales of her numerous love affairs, including the one with Jack Favell. The night of her death, she told Maxim that she was pregnant with another man's child, which she would raise under the pretense that it was Maxim's and he would be powerless to stop her. In a rage, he shot her, then disposed of her body by placing it in her boat and sinking it at sea. This is the part that I love about I. She goes, um, that's cool about the, the murder and all. I'm just really glad you still love me. <laughs> she's more relieved that he's not. Anyway, I'd so like Rebecca's not the run. perfect girl she used to be. So she's like, oh, phew. <laughs> I know. It's an interesting story. I yeah. love it. <laughs> Rebecca's boat is raised and it is discovered that it was deliberately sunk. An inquest brings a verdict of suicide. However, Rebecca's first cousin, you were right, first cousin and lover, Jack Favell, attempts to blackmail Maxim, claiming to have proof that Rebecca could not have intended suicide based on the note she sent him the night she died, which was just like, I love you and I've got really some fantastic news that I'll share with you, that kind of note. Uh, it is revealed that Rebecca had had an appointment with a Dr. Baker in the outskirts of London shortly before her death, presumably to confirm her pregnancy. When the doctor is found, he reveals that Rebecca had been suffering from cancer and would have died within a few months. 
Furthermore, due to the malformation of her uterus, she could never have been pregnant. Maxim assumes that Rebecca, knowing that she was going to die, manipulated him into killing her quickly. Mrs. Danvers said at the inquiry that Rebecca feared nothing except dying a lingering death. Maxim feels a great sense of foreboding and insists on driving through the night to return to Manderley. However, before he comes in sight of the house, it is clear from a glow on the horizon and windborne ashes that it is ablaze. And when they arrive at Manderley, they discover that Mrs. Danvers, in a fit of jealousy and rage, has set the entire estate on fire, including herself, mm-hmm. and is dying a horrific death. So there's the synopsis. Bye. Crazy. Oh my gosh. Like totally crazy. Can't and nobody find good help these days. I'll tell you what. <laughs> it's true. It's I mean, it's really, in, I love the historical significance of this because in 1938, Daphne du Maurier was writing this story about like a creepy old lady who had an obsession with her mistress to the extent that even though her mistress is now dead and gone for a long, long time, mm-hmm. she like is still fully committed like it is craziness should have been fully committed (laughs) yeah so now let's go to the musical which is very very close to the book but i wanted to kind of introduce you to some of the creatives um i will say these names over and over again so hopefully we won't get lost uh but books and lyrics were written by michael kuntz music was sylvester levey LeVay and Kuntz were partners in several different musicals, but they were all European musicals. I think they were mostly in Vienna. So they had a musical called Marie Antoinette. There was another one called Elizabeth, which I believe was about the Queen Elizabeth Mm -hmm. the first, or the first Queen Elizabeth, Uh, not the one we have now. Um, And another one called Mozart, exclamation point. (laughs) I love it when they add an exclamation point to a musical title. It makes me so happy. (laughs) Um, And then the director for the American version is uh, Michael Blakemore and Francesca Zambello. So we'll go into them a little bit later. Uh, Just to give you a background, Michael Kuntz, who wrote the book and lyrics, had read the novel Rebecca when he was a kid. Uh, And then in the 1990s, he reread it and decided that the story would make a fantastic musical. So he traveled to Cornwall, England to find Du Maurier's son in an attempt to obtain the rights to musicalize the work, which had been denied to a lot of other librettists up to this point. Uh, Attending a performance of Kunz's long-running 1992 musical Elizabeth in Vienna persuaded Du Maurier's son that the novel would be in good hands with Kunz and his musical partner, Sylvester LeVay. So there you go. Um, Writing the libretto took Kunz nearly two years, and it took another two years for LeVay to write the music to it. So which is kind of odd. When I read that, I was like, yeah. oh, you, you didn't work together? Right. Because <laughs> you could have saved yourself two years. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not up to me. <laughs> um, let's see. Workshops of the new musical were held in London, but didn't lead to any kind of West End production, although a 2003 demo recording in English was made, and workshops were also presented in Essen and Vienna. Uh, Kunz and LeVay, uh, the music and book and lyrics writers um, formed a collaboration with American director Francesca Zambello and English set designer Peter J. Davison and in early 2005 they decided to launch the musical in Vienna, Austria. 
the musical premiered t- uh, September 28, 2006 at the Raymond Theater in Vienna, where it ran for three years, and subsequent productions had been mounted in Finland, Japan, and elsewhere. This show has been everywhere mm-hmm. except America right. at this point, and I don't think it's ever going to come here, unfortunately. Right. And we'll get to that a little bit later. <laughs> um, so in 2009, so th- it uh, opened in 2006 in Vienna. So now mm. we're skipping to 2009. They did two separate West End readings uh, in hopes that London would produce them. Uh, the second reading actually featured Sierra Bogus and Brent Barrett, whom I love. I love both of those, those people. Uh, and there was talk about doing a Toronto premiere before the Broadway or any kind of West End production. Mm-hmm. So they were looking at just going to Canada and being like, let's just do it in Canada. Right. And then maybe the West End will like us. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Then maybe Broadway will like us. Uh, in July of 2011, Michael Blakemore and Francesca Zambello are announced as co-directors for Rebecca's Broadway premiere. And Bogus is rumored to be in the talks to star in this production as I... Uh, and they're aiming for April 22nd, 2012. It's like, this is what I remember. Because this was when I had just moved back. I had just gotten off of the Phantom Tour. I just moved into New York for the very first time. And, like, this was really kind of the big news that was going on right. in 2012. Wait, wasn't it Sierra and Tam too? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, Brent Barrett just did the West End reading. Okay. Um, but at this point in time, we don't have Tam yet. Okay. This was still early. So this was July. Uh, and then, oh, so it wasn't like it was December, December, 2011 was when the Broadhurst theater was set for the show to run in. Sierra Bogus was, was cast along with Tam Mutu, 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 Mutu. It's M-U-T-U. I know. know. Tam Mutu. And I think I remember hearing that those two were dating at the time. Isn't that cute? <laughs> it's really cute. <laughs> um, Karen Mason as Mrs. Danvers. And I just can't even like, I just want to see that so badly. There are some videos of that I saw oh, really? on YouTube of Ooh, Karen Mason. Okay, I'm going to have yeah. to find that. Yes, you do. <laughs> James Barber playing uh, Jack Favell. And then John Dossett and Nick Wyman, among other cast members, kind of round out the ensemble. January 24th of 2012, two weeks prior to the start of rehearsals, lead producer Ben Sprecher, citing a very negative economic climate, announces that they still don't have enough money and he postpones the April 2012 Broadway opening uh, and Rebecca will now aim to materialize during the following season. So hopefully not too much longer, but Mm -hmm. they just weren't sure. March 2012, Sprecher says the final missing piece of the investment is in place. Yay! But in May, oh, in May, not in but, just in May, <laughs> a tweet goes out confirming that a Broadway opening is set for October 30th of 2012. July 2012, Tam Mutu and Sierra Bogus, though, can't do it anymore. They have scheduled themselves elsewhere, but Ryan Silverman and Jill Pace are set to take their places. Now, I'm going to switch over to the accounts of a friend of mine who was in the cast. Uh, And for reasons that are obvious once you get to thinking about it, I'm going to let this person remain completely anonymous. Um, You know, in theater, it's any kind of black mark can be a really real detriment. And there's nothing that this person is saying that is negative or at all denigrating, but I'm going to respect the anonymity. It's great. I mean, this is Theater Geeks Anonymous. 
Right. <laughs> Emphasis to, on the anonymous right, today. Exactly. Exactly. Theater geeks. Anonymous. <laughs> uh, right. Once offered the role, they still waited some months before rehearsals were set to start. A few weeks before the allotted time, the general manager at the time called and said the show was canceled because of funding. He assured my friend that things were going to be fine. The show would go up. They just didn't know when. He promised that he would, uh, the general manager promised that he would call in a few weeks and let my friend know. Mm-hmm. Well, a few weeks pass, and sure enough, the GM calls back and he says, we're going up September or October and the dates are secured. Great. This is now, I'm quoting my friend. One month after finding out about going ahead with the Rebecca while I was signing my contract. Sheldon at Professional Artist comes into the room where I was signing and says, hey, I just found out Rebecca lost all their money. They're canceling it. I look at him and I laugh and I tell him to F off. Then he mentions something about having an Australian producer that is going to help bring money into it. Still very strange hearing him say that with what lies ahead. So the day before rehearsal, yeah, that Sunday before we're supposed to go in, I get a text from a friend saying that he just read an article in the uh, New York Times about Rebecca being canceled. I was like, dude, come on. That's some BS. We're fine. Then he calls. I read the article while uh, out looking for a nice first day outfit, which just breaks my heart a little bit. Uh, And I couldn't believe it. I kept saying, dude, rehearsal is tomorrow. It's fine. Then I get the call from Jim Barber saying that it was for real. We all are invited to the first day of rehearsal at the New 42, and that turns out to be more of a funeral than a happy day. The floors were all marked. The storyboards and sets, uh, set boards were all laid out in the room. All of the cast was there, as well as the crew. We all shared a lot of love before the funeral. Ben Sprecher was there leading. Oh, and you know what? Let me just mention that Ben Sprecher is the executive producer. He's the Mm -hmm. lead producer. And I don't think I mentioned that when we were talking before. But he was the one that was in charge of funding the entire project. He's the one who fell in love with the show when he saw it in Europe. Exactly. And wanted to bring it to Broadway. Yeah. Um, Ben Sprecher was there and he was leading this conversation. He introduced the writers who were absolutely amazing and hilarious. And then he went into what happened. This is from the horse's mouth. This is what I love about it. Ben talked about Mark Houghton conning him out of money and how he never saw it coming. Another cast member, and this is a sidebar right now, another cast member that I spoke to remarked Mm -hmm. that Ben Sprecher was a really great guy and Mm -hmm. his only mistake uh, this other cast member felt was just being too enthusiastic and maybe not seeing the con for what it was. Um, And now we're switching back to my other friend. This is what I heard. The first cancellation was because Mark Houghton said the investor wanted more info on the show and is a little trepidatious. So Houghton says the investor likes safaris and tells Ben he needs about $30,000 to take him on a safari and basically wine him and dine him. You can't see me (laughs) shaking my head. No! (laughs) Ben follows through. From what my friend had been told, uh, so Houghton is basically ble- bleeding Ben dry while he's concocting the scheme to take money and run. Uh, so hence the investor dies on safari. And I will definitely get into this story later. I'm just kind of glossing it over right, right. now just to get the story told. Uh, the investor dies on the safari. Mark Houghton is the biggest effing idiot I have ever read about. Really? That's the best excuse you have? You belong in jail. But the fact that Ben fell for it, well, that just sucks. End quote. Mark Houghton. <laughs> Big old piece of crap. Blah. 
Greedy, terrible human. Greedy, terrible human being. So here's a little background in him. At 24 years old, he starts forging checks worth $30,000 to buy construction equipment. He's charged with grand larceny, but pleads it down to possession of stolen property and served three years probation. Later on, he defrauded partners at Oppenheimer, where he worked, because apparently Oppenheimer will hire people that defraud other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he paid Oppenheimer $2 million to resolve it, and he was able to keep his job there. So stupid. Um, He was accused of fraud again later on, and in order to hide, uh, he... Oh, to hide the fraud, he stole more funds. He did something that I read. It's basically called churning, where you kind of rob Peter to pay Pay Paul Paul, and hope that Peter doesn't talk to Paul. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And in this case, he didn't. Um, Because in 2011, he just filed bankruptcy after being fired when the clients noticed he was stealing the money. So he just got fired. He wasn't actually sent to jail or anything like that. In 2012 is when Ben Sprecher hired him to find investors to fill out the rest of the budget for Rebecca. He, at that point, had already had $8 million, but he still needed several million more. So probably about $4 million, I think, is what I read. Um, what he would do for Mark Houghton was pay Mark $7,500 right up front to find the funding. And then he would also pay him 8% of any funds raised above $250,000. Now, if I were in Ben Sprecher's position, I'd be like, okay, absolutely. I'm getting off cheap because I really only have to pay you if the show is a success. And if the show is a success, I don't mind paying you. <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> so. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. in expenses later, including $19,000 to take a would-be investor on a safari in Africa. Again, safari. Uh Uh-huh. He claims that the investor named Paul Abrams contracted malaria while on the safari and has died. I keep shaking my head and you guys can't see it, but (laughs) I'm so frustrated. I have to show some sort of physical reaction to my anger and frustration. You know, I mean, like, I feel like if there was a musical written just based on that it would be a fantastic musical well absolutely it's like what we really need what we really need (laughs) is a musical based on the backstory of how rebecca fell apart and then another musical based on the story of how spider-man turn off the dark (laughs) fell apart and i feel like both musicals would be much better than the actual shows can i tell you that when all of this imploded on the internet Mm -hmm. i posted on facebook that that's exactly what i posted basically (laughs) not the spider-man part but i said you know what they should do is write a musical based on making the musical rebecca Mm -hmm. and then they'll recoup all their money right and i was excoriated online well by one person who i just unfriended because it was like dude like get a sense of humor because he was like i have friends in the cast this is devastating and i was like i have friends in the cast too and they're fine (laughs) 
they're gonna be fine like it was so like anyway so now getting some back. people don't oh. have a sense of humor it's and true. i can't be friends with any of those people i can't either <laughs> because no you know like call me on it if if you think i'm doing something wrong then right. absolutely but that call was me like on it, clearly but really it was a joke and it wasn't even in poor taste like it's just no. a, it's it's trying to make light of something that is a really crappy situation yeah. if you can't That's laugh all. you'll cry seriously and I was trying to make people laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so now this investor's dead and his money is tied up in his estate because he's dead. Rumors were abounding that Sprecher was defrauding the production and his friend and attorney decided to set the record straight. He hired a private detective who recorded a breakfast meeting between attorney and Houghton. Houghton kept dodging the questions regarding Paul Abrams and his death, and it became very clear that Houghton was the fraudster. This lawyer friend is Russo, right? Yes. Thank you for saying that because I yeah. did not write it down. Yes. So Peter Russo, is I that right? I can't remember his first name, but his last name is definitely Russo. Yeah. Uh, if you do any kind of search on Rebecca the Musical, his right. name will definitely come up. He's a good friend. Yeah. There's an episode of American Greed that you actually right. sent me the link for um oh no we watched it together yeah we did it's on hulu if you all have hulu you can watch it totally watch it because it's worth it but i mean this american greed episode follows mark houghton follows his you know fraudulent career um but at one point we meet this lawyer russo who is explaining that like there's no way i'm gonna let people think that my friend is committing this fraud like he may be naive Mm -hmm. he may have been conned but like he's not the person that is doing this so he said it straight meanwhile sprecher had an angel investor that would save the show but wanted to remain anonymous someone emailed this investor someone emailed this investor basically saying that it would be a huge mistake to invest in the show and that investor backed out but it was not because of the content of the email more because his email address was given out this man wanted to remain completely anonymous and he's now getting this email from someone that has his email address which was like the biggest no-no so he backed out uh, summer of 2013, Houghton and his wife, Sherry, both pled guilty to wire fraud and money laundering unrelated to Rebecca. And Houghton was an, uh, sentenced to 11 years in prison for that, plus another three years for the scandal in Rebecca or for, for his fraud in Rebecca. So he's altogether 14 years? I think so. I okay. mean, I think that that's how I read it. It could be that it's just 11 years total, but three of those years are for but, Rebecca. But the way that I understood it was it was 14 years total. Um, Sherry at this point also has not been sentenced, which is kind of really ridiculous to me because we're coming on now four years right. from the day that she pled guilty, but now she's still living it up in her mansion. It's really frustrating. She's super on, frustrating. She's in this mansion on Long Island. She's Still on Instagram, money. like showing her muscles. <laughs> it's because yeah. now she's able to like own a gym, which yeah. like she shouldn't own anything. No, she's the worst. Well, and honestly, all of their money should have been confiscated. That's right, and given to the people who they fraud exactly they, defrauded. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's so. usually actually how it it goes. Is all of the assets are liquidated. Mm-hmm. And then whatever money can be retrieved is given back to the people right. who lost money. Usually now, that's how it works. I but. think that in some states, the house is the only asset that is safe. Oh, so, if you only have one house, you mean? 
Because I've I seen people that have had know. multiple. Well, oh, then, I guess it depends on well, the they, state, like you yeah. said. Because people who have like multiple houses, usually they will are, sell their. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But in this case, and who knows? But it, regardless, four years after she right. pleads guilty, it's not even that she's going to trial. She's right. not going to trial. She's going to sentencing. But they haven't done it in four years. And I would like to know why. But we're never going to find out. <laughs> So remember how I said that someone emailed that angel investor and told them not yes. to invest? Oh, geez. Well, it turns out that it was this man named Mark Thibodeau, who was the former publicist and press agent for Rebecca the Musical. Freaky nightmare. And has done a lot of press, a, a lot of, um, he's been the publicist for a lot of shows, including like Phantom of the Opera for right. 25 years. Um, let me read this and then we're going to chat, Ebony, because okay. I got a lot to chat about. But I want to <laughs> get all the information out first. So lawyers for the producers of Rebecca sued Mark Thibodeau, the show's former publicist in state Supreme Court, for defamation and breach of contract and fiduciary duty, claiming that he scared off the 11th hour angel investor whose money might have enabled the show to go on. That investor who made his $2.2 million offer conditional upon total anonymity pulled out in September after receiving an email from a fictitious Sarah Finkelstein that recounted the show's troubles and predicted the walls were about to cave in on Rebecca and its lead producer Ben Sprecher. That name even, Sarah Finkelstein. I'm like, you might as well have had like Lucille McGillicuddy. <laughs> It'd have been the same. Yes. Uh, a lawyer for Mr. Thibodeau responded that yes, Mr. Thibodeau had sent the Finkelstein email to warn an innocent investor that the show was caught in a web of deceit after concluding that Mr. Sprecher was in denial about the obvious red flags facing Rebecca. Mr. Thibodeau, a veteran theater publicist who has represented the Phantom of the Opera for its entire 25-year run, is an innocent whistleblower, is what the lawyer says. Uh, And that lawyer is Jeffrey Lichtman. Several producers said they could not recall a publicist going behind their backs on one of their investors. It's it's unheard of. Right. Uh, oh goodness. How Mr. do you get a job after that? Like, who can trust right? you? I don't think he's... I think he's still at the same company. Uh, but you're right. Who would be able to trust you? Mr. Spritcher's lawyer, Ronald G. Russo. Okay, Ronald. Sorry we down. called you Peter yeah, earlier. Sorry. Sorry, we Peter. apologize, sir. <laughs> Just kidding. Sorry, Ronald. Um, He described Mr. Thibodeau's email as a profound act of malice and betrayal and said he was still investigating the motive. Mr. Russo noted that in addition to Mr. Thibodeau, the lawsuit names Jane and John Doe's one through three associates who may have encouraged Mr. Thibodeau to send the email as a way to scuttle Rebecca. Mr. Russo said Mr. Thibodeau has several other clients who conceivably might have lost business to Rebecca, like Phantom, another gothic romantic musical on Broadway. This fascinates me, this angle, that one client may color how you treat and how you perform for another client. Uh, and I'm, this is all alleged. This is all just conjecture here. But like, wouldn't that just be so incredible to find out that that's exactly what it was? Like someone on the Phantom Company said, hey, smart Thibodeau. And he was like, oh, I gotcha. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case. And we are going to, um, I'll read some of what Mark Thibodeau said as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, and then we'll chat. Okay. <laughs> I just keep saying that, but there's more information <laughs> to go through. Um, so the case went to trial on April 24th, 2017. Um, 
this was after I finished writing all of what I just spoke to you about. So a little bit of this is going to be slightly stunted. Um, the next information that I provide just simply because I'm going to be reading it from the internet. Uh, <laughs> what's it called when you write something for a newspaper An article? article. <laughs> I just had to work my way through it. <laughs> um, so, uh, on April 24th, the headline reads, Trial for Broadway's Rebecca Scandal begins. Um, this is the New York Times. Opening arguments began on Monday in a civil trial about the Broadway musical that never came to be. It was a real-life drama. Blah, blah, blah. The producers of Rebecca are suing the musical's former publicist Mark Thibodeau in the New York Supreme Court. They say that without their knowledge, he sent these anonymous emails. Mr. Thibodeau has previously found, been found in breach of contract in a related case. The jury will assess damages for that finding, uh, for that finding and decide two other claims by the producers. Oh, do you know what that is? Uh, so this was a couple of months before the trial actually began. They brought it to the New York Supreme Court or to one of the to some sort of judicial something. And that judge found that Mark Thibodeau was in breach of contract. So he was able to stand trial. Okay. So that was like the preliminary hearing. So now the the jury is going to assess damages for that, for the breach of contract. And they're also going to decide whether or not he had, um, whether or not he was guilty of the fiduciary, uh, uh, not following through on fiduciary duty or something like that, and also punitive damages. That's what the jury is going to decide. I had mentioned it before, but it is worth mentioning again. Mark Thibodeau said multiple times that during the course of this trial that he had brought his um, his anxiety over this Paul Abrams and Mark Houghton issue mm-hmm. to Ben Sprecher. When he was trying to do research on Paul Abrams, who was the investor that mysteriously died of malaria, but that didn't actually exist. Right. um, When he looked him up, he couldn't find any information. So he thought that that was odd. Mark Thibodeau thought that was odd. He brought it to, to Ben Sprecher. And Mark says that Ben told him, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm working another angle right now. Just leave it be. Don't tell anybody. Which could be either, you know, A, what Mark Thibodeau believes, which is that Ben Sprecher knew and ignored. Um, B, that Ben knew, but maybe not to the extent, didn't realize that it was fraud yet, but was already, you know, find, he already found another investor. So that was what he was worrying about right now. All right. he needed to do was find money at this point. Mm-hmm. He didn't, there was no fraud yet on on this in this story. So anyway, so it's, it's a little bit odd and a little disconcerting. And so Mark Thibodeau is basically from his point of view saying, well, if you're not going to do anything about it, I can't in good conscience, let this other now angel investor come in to a fraudulent case. Like I can't, I can't do that. So that was why then he sent these anonymous emails I have issue with that because if you really do believe that, then why would you do it anonymously? Right. Uh, And also, if you really truly felt like there was fraud involved and that maybe Ben Sprecher was involved, that's then your cue to say, I'm out. 
That's right. And wash your hands of the whole thing and then let it all play out without you involved. Right. So those are my issues with Mark Thibodeau. They do have now, and this is what's really interesting, is like, we, we tried to record this episode before, and it just, the sound quality was terrible, and so this is the second time we're recording it, and it's really interesting to me, because the day after we recorded it, mm-hmm. this story came out that said, ah, the jury's in, right? Uh, and so now we have, like, basically all the information that we need to know to finish this story off, which is really kind of cool. So, the jury verdict on Wednesday... Well, this was written on May 10th, so the beginning of May. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming it would be the first Wednesday in May. Um, let's see. Uh, bro- uh, uh, the jury verdict on Wednesday in the bizarre case of Rebecca, a Broadway-bound musical that never came to be, fell far short of the $11 million the producers had sought in a lawsuit against the show's former publicist. After deliberating for two days, a New York State Supreme Court jury awarded only $90,000 in compensatory damages and nothing in punitive damages to Ben Sprenzer and Luis Forlenza, the producers of Rebecca. The two also lost on their claim of defamation against the publicist Mark Thibodeau, who had sent anonymous emails to the prospective Rebecca investor to warn him that the production was facing problems. Ben Spretcher and Luis Forlenza, again, the two producers in this, sued Mr. Thibodeau after the series of twists and turns derailed the musical in 2012 before its scheduled Broadway opening. Okay, so after the $4.5 million fell through, Larry Runsdorf, who was the angel investor, agreed to invest $2.25 million in Rebecca as long as he could remain anonymous. He then started receiving anonymous emails that claimed the walls were about to cave in on Mr. Sprecher and that with this prospect of fraud, an ongoing money shortage, a bad public perception, anemic ticket sales, and a rabid press corps, the only good reason to invest in Rebecca would be for a tax write-off and a Desire to be dragged into a fraud trial. Mr. Runsdorf, the angel investor, stung by the breach of his anonymity, pulled his investment. The show collapsed. Mr. Sprecher and Ms. Forlenza discovered that Mr. Thibodeau, uh, their publicist and a Broadway industry veteran who had become dismayed with the producer's handling of Rebecca, had sent the emails to Mr. Runsdorf. The producer sued him for breach of contract, tortious interference, and defamation, asking for compensatory damages of $10.6 million, so almost eleven. The jury on Wednesday found that Mr. Thibodeau should pay $5,000 for breach of contract, which was what the judge had already found him liable of, and $85,000 for tortious interference. The jury said Mr. Thibodeau was not guilty of defamation, which I kind of disagree with. Well, 100% disagree. Yeah. Mr. Thibodeau reached by email Wednesday, said that he was relieved and gratified. Of course you are. Mm -hmm. By the verdict, one of his lawyers, Andrew T. Miltonberg, issued a statement accusing the producers of looking for a scapegoat for their own failure to raise money money for Rebecca. I know. It just makes me so frustrated. Uh, Yeah. Well, in any job, but especially one that is dependent on all of the pieces all of the people that are cogs in the gear and gears in the works right trust is of the utmost importance Mm -hmm. and i think that was the downfall a lot of a lot of this trust that was misplaced that was stolen that was betrayed that really was what came that's that's really what made rebecca fall right you know, Ben Spretcher 
certainly put his trust in someone that shouldn't have been trusted. Right. He could have done it. You know, he, and at one point, um, I think that Mark Thibodeau did bring up that he did a Google search on Mark Houghton and found all of these fraud cases against right. him. And Ben Sprecher did at that point say, yeah, I know. I talked to him about that. We've got it settled. It's right. fine. All he's doing is finding money for me. It's not right. like, you know, and, and also Ben is the only person that was paying Mark Houghton. Right. It's not like Mark, it's not like Ben was going to other investors and saying, I need money so that Mark Houghton can take this guy on safari. It's Ben's money. Is it though? Because I thought, okay, so he he had 8 million Mm -hmm. and he needed 4 million to have 12 million to put the show on. Right. So, but I, I thought that the 8 million might have been partly his money but a bunch of other investors he well, had also what i mean is because that's in that's all that's different so the show that the money that went to the show is different from the money that ben was giving mark houghton in order to a find the investors but also to take them on safari to wine and dine and for other incidental expenses okay. um so it was mark houghton that was out this thirty thousand dollars okay per, to, like ben, so it was no, no, you mean Ben. It was Ben Sprecher who was out these, yes. this 30000 Oh, what did I say? You said Mark Cotton. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, ben Sprecher that was out the 30000 to Mark Cotton. Okay. And, but it's that was so his personal convoluted. money. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's what I understand. Okay. That wasn't from other investors to pay Mark Cotton because I think that would be fraud because that w- that's not part of the show. Right. So I think that was on Ben Sprecher. Okay. Like he was out, uh, he's out a loss, but now like all of the other investors now, Ben Sprecher is on the hook for them for the $8 million that was raised, which is just, I mean, it's just really sad. I, I just, I try very hard to read both sides right, and to really gain an understanding of where everybody's coming from. But in this case, I really don't see it from Mark Thibodeau's standpoint. Right. Your job is to uh, uh, market and to put out information about Mm -hmm. your client and to do it in all in a positive light. And if you feel, if you truly feel that you cannot accomplish that job, then it's your duty to to leave, to resign, to get out of that particular position. So it just, it just makes me, it may, if I were on that jury. <laughs> well, and it's you know? like when you, so I had gone to a concert a few months ago called Broadway Bound, which mm-hmm. was hosted by um, a couple of theater historians. And one of them's a host on my favorite podcast. And they had Jill Pace there. Okay. And she sang a song from Rebecca. And so it's like when you're sitting there and you're listening to someone who this was going to be her big break. Yeah. And well, and by all accounts, really everyone in the cast's big break. Right. And she was so she's still so heartbroken about it. Mm-hmm. Like you could just tell yeah. when she before she was singing the song, she was even like, like, I just this I can't even. <laughs> oh. Um, but. But, you know, one of the things she said was she didn't even find out from a general manager or from a producer. She found out, and she was going to be the lead. She was going to be I. Mm-hmm. She found out from Michael Rydell's article in the New York Post. To find out that way when this was going to be, you know, your really big break, to find out that way. And then, you know, just the heartbreak for all of these people. And, and now, you know, 
this man doesn't even, he's not even held accountable for what he did. Yeah. It's just very disconcerting. Very. And very disheartening. Yeah. It's so rare to have a show want to open and be surrounded by people that are nothing but supportive of it. Right. And for, and for everybody on board to be so excited and Mm -hmm. so like genuinely joyous about the project itself. It's so rare to find that. And so when you do, and I think nerds is also a show um, that was based. It's like Steve Jobs story, basically musical. They were in rehearsal. It was like the rival between Steve Jobs and and Bill, uh, Gates. Gates. Um, and it was it was in rehearsals. They were in their final rehearsal yeah. when the producer walked in and said, sorry, guys, you're not going anywhere. And it was heartbreaking. But like that was another show where everyone was so on they board. So, yeah. And so the fact that these shows that like everybody wants to succeed so badly are having so much trouble going anywhere is just mm. really disheartening. It's sad. It yeah. is sad. Because I... You and I are very similar in that when we were growing up, it was musical theater all the time. All the time. All the time. I mean, I decided when I was 10 that Broadway was where I was headed. All I I had were Christian albums and (laughs) cast recordings. Yeah. Those were the, that's the only music I owned. All I had were cast recordings. (laughs) I remember like the very first uh, cassette tape, because that's how old I am, um, that I I bought for myself was the four cassette tape recording of Les Mis. It was the first thing I ever bought for myself. That's awesome. With my allowance money. Or like the first, I should say the first music that I ever bought for myself. And I listened to that thing until it was nothing but disintegrated plastic. <laughs> like it, I just loved it. And I would like play and pause and write down the words so that I could sing with it later. <laughs> Wait, it didn't have the words in the jacket? Not in the cassette tape. Oh. No. I know. Isn't that sad? Because like my, my. My West Side Story one had yeah. all the lyrics in the little booklet thing. Uh, I do remember most of them having librettos, but some of them just didn't. And this oh. was one of them that didn't. That's a lot of words. It is a lot of words. And I was committed. I was focused. <laughs> it's like, you know, I can't do my math homework, but I will spend hours and hours mm-hmm. dictating the words to Les Mis. <laughs> And they were all, you know, they probably weren't even correct. Like, I'm sure that I still <laughs> sing along with Les Mis and say the wrong words. I know that I do. But it's, I, I, my point in saying that was that my love of musical theater is so ingrained in yeah. my heart and soul that it physically hurts me when I hear stories like this yeah. and when, you know, shows that by all accounts should have succeeded don't Mm. which is honestly one of the reasons why i think we're doing this podcast right not just to tell the stories because the stories are just fascinating really fascinating and i hope that you guys are as fascinated as we are (laughs) but also just to kind of let people know the amount of time and energy and work and money that go into putting on a show and if it doesn't succeed it's just poof Right. It just disappears. And nobody thinks about it again. After people have worked years and years. Well, that's Rebecca. It's Rebecca, guys. So sad. <laughs> and I honestly, I don't believe that it will ever. Yeah. I, I think they've lost the rights at this yeah, they point. Did. The rights were taken yeah, away. They, lo- they lost the rights. They did. So it won't ever be coming. But 
the good news is that there are cast recordings, not a cast recording, but like there are recordings of some of the musical numbers out there on YouTube. Right. Um, and I think they've got some videos on RebeccaTheMusical.com, which oh. is the official website. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the recording that I'm talking about where Karen Mason kills it oh. as Mrs. Danvers. Okay. There's also Bryant Park, Broadway and Bryant Park, oh, Jill Pace right. and Ryan Silverman singing a duet together. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's stuff out there. It's so good. Like, ah, it's just gothic musicals are my favorite (laughs) to perform (laughs) and to listen to because they're just so full of emotion. And I love that. It's my fave. That's why I like, like, even though it wasn't very popular, Lestat, Dance of the Vampires, like all of those. Yeah, those weren't, but wasn't (laughs) Kelly O'Hara, which one of those was she in? Wasn't she in one of those? Kelly O'Hara. I don't think so. I think Carl, uh, Carolee Carmelo was in Dance of the Vampires, wasn't she? Okay. And Lestat. Kelly was in a, a bad vampire musical. She could have been. I'm sure that there are more than just the two. <laughs> but those were the two most, weren't those the two most recent yeah, that were on I Broadway? Mean, yeah, I think like within the last 10 years. Okay. Well, look it up if you've yeah. got some time. I'll remind our audience that uh, if you would like to, you may like, share, and follow us on Facebook <laughs> at Theater Geeks Anonymous. Um, we have a Twitter. What is the handle for our Twitter, Ebony? At TGA. Beway! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, at t- uh, tgabway at gmail.com if you've got any questions or comments or if you know the answer to something that we were talking about or you might have a different opinion. We want to hear it. What else? Oh, rate, subscribe. Uh, review. Review. I was like, yeah. there's, there's three. It's always in three. <laughs> rate, review, and subscribe. Um, All the things. Yeah, that's it. Oh, All gracious. right. Well, and that's it. scene. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.